currently, you know, the outlook is not very exciting. Um, obviously, our annual GDP growth rates have reduced quite significantly, uh, based to you know, based on the fact that we are highly exposed to this economic behemoth called China, uh, who who had this insatiable appetite for for our leading commodity, which is you know, our leading uh, export earner, which is copper, and you know, with the fact that we don't earn as much uh, export revenue from copper as we used to because of the the the, 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 the fact that the price went down. Uh, essentially uh, meant that you know the amount of liquidity in the economy, particularly foreign reserves, uh, uh, you know, essentially triggered the the downward spiral of, of the of the quacha. And ultimately, because we are highly in, uh, dependent on imports for everything we, we we consume, the prices of everything shot up. I mean, right now we're looking at like a little over twenty percent uh, inflation, which could even be a little bit worse because I think. Um, I don't know. Look, with all due respect to the Central Statistical Office, uh, there's, you know, they they, they, they want to be a little bit conservative because they don't want to tell you that hey, the, the, you know, the sky is falling. So that's that's essentially um, what what has characterized this this sort of downturn. Um, and that's I think that's entirely it. And of course, so the, the 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 perfect storm of of this economic downturn is also uh, sort of coupled with. The load shedding, which also has had a massive impact on on our ability to to earn export revenues, uh, have have export earnings, because you know if, yeah, for example, the milling companies that uh, of course process grain and then uh, export to Congo or some of these other markets where we're able to earn uh, foreign revenue from, are not are not operating at full capacity. Maybe they're operating at forty percent capacity or fifty percent capacity. So you've got a lot of farming entities, agri entities, or any other entity who is in the production uh, space, um, but un unfortunately uh, has to scale down because of the fact that there's insufficient power. Um, and with that means less movement, the velocity of, of money in, in the economy is, is a lot slower. Uh, the central bank has had to make certain decisions uh, you know, around the monetary policy, making it very difficult for banks to, to well, I guess restricting banks from issuing uh, you know, debt. And, and them raising the interest rates to getting towards what 45 percent now, which is pretty hectic. So, with that, and so when you have an economy where businesses are not able to borrow money, so they're not able to access you know debt or leverage, which is very important for the process of any business to sort out its obligations and so on. Uh, it essentially means that less people will be employed, and I think a lot of jobs have been shed. Um, you know, from the mining sector, from the, in fact, even I mean, I, I just have to be frank. Unfortunately, no one. No one has been immune to, to this. I mean, even within the, the cooler sort of group, the, the portfolio of companies that we've invested in, there has there had to have been uh, some jobs shed because of the fact that, you know, we, some of the companies weren't able to meet their obligations due to, to that particular fact. So um, it's, it's extremely, unfortunately, dire. But as an eternal optimist, I believe that, you know, the, the commodity cycle will, will pass and we'll get into a stage where the copper price will begin to increase um, and then it should sort of reinvigorate, you know, the, the economy. And then I think that the final sort of factor I forgot to mention is the fact that we're heading into an election. So a lot of investors hold back funds. A lot of people are a bit skeptical because mm -hmm. they expect that whether it be the same government continuing or another government, there's still a possibility of a policy change. But so people will likely settle down right after the election. So that that in itself is is what we're essentially waiting for. And then I believe 2017 will be back on the upward, uh, uh, sorry, uh, um, so upward uh, track and, and the trend will be, will be good from there.
and, and would have learned as a country invest in you know uh, power generation uh, diversify the economy not to be dependent on copper because we've seen this the, the exposure to the international markets is primarily on copper and we need to in integrate the southern african uh, you know economies so that we're not so that we actually are trading with our neighboring markets and, uh, and uh, yeah that's 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 my my brief view i'm not the most i guess that one caught me by surprise so <laughs> no it, very, yeah. very very insightful yeah. uh, I, I, and i want to ask you this mm -hmm. uh maybe just to to get an understanding yeah. uh when when we talk of uh sourcing finance there's there's what we call the capital markets equity markets yeah. uh, the banks as, as you alluded to right. and and other microfinance uh, uh kind of uh entities yeah uh, just just break, break break them down for us in, sure. in terms of understanding which uh, depending on my position as an SME or as an entrepreneur which 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 venue I, I need to look at great well um, you have some options um, in terms of raising capital I'll, I'll give two scenarios mm. you've got a guy called John he's looking to start a business uh, complete startup he has no resources he's got no um, yeah the business doesn't exist so you essentially need seed capital now unfortunately because of the high risk uh, of seed, seed uh, of startups, there aren't financial institutions that are willing to fund a startup unless it's a donor-related uh, uh, entity, such as uh, like a development finance institution like DFID. DFID actually uh, put together this private enterprise program in Zambia, which does the Nyamuka events. Um, they also do um, advisory for business development services. They also are investing in funds, uh, you know, that can uh, essentially invest in startups. So. They're, those DFIs have, uh, which, which is development finance institutions, have an appetite for startups. So that's the first option for, for you know, a person looking to start up, uh, to get startup capital. There's two other options. They're very limited options for startups. Uh, the second one is basically, and I think this is something that uh, some people, and particularly young people, I think most of the audience to this, to this broadcast are young people. Uh, the mechanism is essentially seed capital through friends, through family. Through the people, so the question is, who would you go to if you needed your school fees paid? You know, that's who would seed you because they are investing in you the same way an education is an important invest investment. If an institution won't invest because an institution has shareholders that they need to report to and have guidelines who, and, and within the guidelines, it, it has to be quite clear on the risk factors and you have to mitigate risk. So this is why you can't invest in a startup as a, as a private equity fund. So friends, family, even personal savings. So when you work for a number of years and you're putting aside your savings, it's that's usually where most seed capital comes from. And this is why you find most stories, like for example, I think Moano, um, he, I don't know, if, I think he had mortgaged his mom's house or something. Mm -hmm. So you've got those sort of inspirational stories of people taking drastic steps in order to, you know, to, to get their business started. So startups, you you basically have to roll up your sleeves and find a way. And unfortunately, it won't, it's highly unlikely to be institutional. You could be fortunate to get maybe uh, like a government institution like CEC. Mm -hmm. um, or, yeah, I think, yeah, that's, that's essentially it. But that's, that's all I know, at least for, for now. And then if you're lucky, there's angel investors. These are high net worth individuals. So let's say you've got a really wealthy uncle who has you know, done pretty well in, in his business. And, and, uh, and you say, look, uncle so-and-so. I've got this tomato business. I need to invest in it. I promise you this thing's going to work. But because he loves you, he's your uncle, he'll give you the money. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. Even if you lose the money, he, you know, he's not, not going to hold you to it. So people who will seed you are the people who can probably afford to lose the money. Um, now, the second type of entrepreneur, which is the one who actually has a business up and running, 
it's been it's generated cash flows it's creating value it's got uh, you know yeah it's got everything set up in terms from a regulatory statutory point of view um, and and it's got a it's got a, a market so there that's where private equity comes in we can now look at the financials historically we can look at the business model we can come to the premises we can get to know the entrepreneur we can do a market study on that basis and see how we can intervene so venture capital most certainly can look at something like that that's an option there's also mezzanine debt which is a special type of uh, loan facility that enables that that is related very closely to private equity so the but what it uses as collateral is the receivables within the company and it also uses um, yeah forward income which is you know pretty much the receivables uh, let me see what else and then uses the the stock or the shares you know the equity within the company as collateral as well so that's another option is mezzanine debt that's that's for the entrepreneur who doesn't want to be diluted said look I need the money but I, I don't, I'm not willing to give up equity so you can say okay fine let's, let's adjust this transaction for it to be structured that way is MFI debt which is microfinance institutions that we we invested in a company called Bethanel Finance uh, about a year or two ago um, which uh, the CEO of is a uh, Nkoma who pretty uh, you know, successful uh, businessman who's spent quite a bit of time in the banking sector so mm -hmm. he, he's been running that so he, he knows the SME space very well so you find um, that you know the most the, you get a lot of applications from SMEs who successfully are able to get uh, debt through that facility so that's pure debt that's basically you know for as long as you have sufficient collateral you're gonna get the money similar to a bank but probably more flexible because it's more of a boutique type of entity um, now, in terms of the institutions that exist where you can find these three forms, apart from the banks, of course, banks are an option, but they tend to be a bit more stringent. So I think for young people, you're more likely to want to talk to people who will, will pay attention, who will take you seriously, like venture capital, mezzanine, debt, MFIs. So you have Kukula Capital, of course. We're, we're, we're here. You know, we're locally domiciled, and we're, we've, we've um, done quite a number of investments already. So we have quite a bit of credibility. You've got guys like Rofin who also do private equity but mostly have been doing debt transactions so they're based here they're very aggressive as well you've got business partners it's a South African entity who um, also doing private equity and, and debt you've got focus um, who also have some um, sort of uh, debt products that are that are very unique to, to their um, to their system you've got Aflife who also going into private equity there's a company called Fatisa who is more focused on agriculture and real estate You've got Karima, you've got, I think for the time being, this is who's in, in the market right now. Mm -hmm. So these are the options that entrepreneurs out there can, can come and see and, and sort of get to know. And um, yeah, and at least, and it's growing because, and by the way, just something I should mention, it's an honorable mention. Mm. Kukula Capital was established at a time when there was no venture capital in Zambia, no private equity. So it's, it's, it's the first and uh, locally domiciled private equity fund in the country. Prior, there was an initiative by the African Development Bank called the Zambia Venture Capital Limited or something like that. But Kukula was the first one that's privately owned, pri privately run with uh, funds that are sourced independently, that's structured in a way that is very, um, from a statutory po uh, point of view, very pure in the sense, in, in, in how private equity should be structured within, under the Securities and Exchange Commission. So, yeah. So that's what enabled these other guys to come in and say, okay, this thing works. I think we're going to come in. Okay. Yeah. So um, be, uh, being the first uh, private equity firm in Zambia, yep. we've actually seen a rise, like you mentioned, the many different 
private equity firms within uh, the country and the continent as a whole. You know, like PE funds invested close to 8.1 billion in African companies yeah. over 2014, uh, which is the second highest total ever. But uh, Africa and other emerging markets still represent a very small share yes. in the private equity, the global private equity pool. Why do you think this is so? Okay, um, first of all, it's true that there has been a rise uh, in, in the amount of funds that have been dispersed in, in sub-Saharan Africa, in private equity. Though right now, I must mention, is that the, the, the Africa rising narrative is in doubt. Because of what I explained earlier when you, you know, asked about sort of my view of the economy mm -hmm. and the struggles we're going through, is that... Commodity prices sl slumping. Exactly. But the one thing that's consistent is the fact that we have the you know, youngest population in the world, the fastest growing populations, which means it's the fastest growing market. Because uh, an extra mouth to feed is, is, is obviously great for, from a financial perspective, especially if you're involved in fast-moving com com uh, consumable goods um, and numerous other sectors. Um, now, the thing about that big number you mentioned, mm -hmm. $8 billion, you would think, man, this, th there must be a very energetic SME space. But the, the, dirty, the, the unfortunate secret about private equity, particularly from an international perspective in Africa, is that it doesn't invest in the SME space. You know, there's what we call a sweet spot. And the sweet spot for a private equity fund sitting out in, in London, in fact, that Africa, uh, Africa Venture Capital Association, another one that did that study, uh, they, they sit out in London. So, they, so they've got this perspective. They look at all the big London, you know, New York investment funds who, whose sweet spot is $50 million. They want to come into Zambia and do a, get a 20% stake in a, in a company that's valued at $100 million. And you're thinking... You know, obviously, a 20% stake for $100 million mean, would mean that they have to invest $20 million. But there aren't companies that are of that character. You know, character. Mm -hmm. so they're either already highly cap capitalized, so they already may be listed, um, or, you know, you have entities. Like, I'll give you an example. In fact, that, that particular number, it, it included, like in Zambia, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the Rabobank transaction with Zanaco. It, it included the Monday Hill transaction, where these are things that we, those transactions don't happen here. They happen somewhere else, but you know the impact is here, so they just say, okay, fine, that happened in Africa. Ah. So, the, so the number is a lot smaller. Um, the um, like Amethian Agri, when they come in, they do a transaction. You know, it's it's pretty massive. So their sweet spot is extremely high. You know, Silverlands, even uh, when when Airtel uh, took over Zane, um, Zambif, uh, which has some equity from you know entities like Investec Asset Management and so on, and then of course the controversial Zamtel. Mm. That was a, a massive private equity deal. So that. That sort of figure is actually not talking about um, the small the, the businesses that are essentially owned by Zambians. These are foreign. These are multinationals, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's where the problem is. Is that the part, our participation as Zambians is very limited in this economy, and and that missing middle is usually filled by, you know, obviously, you know, we, we have to be. We're, the beautiful thing about Zambia is we're probably the most accommodating most respectful people around and we have a very diverse population um, and it also sort of it's a very it's a flourishing place for people of origins outside of being you know indigenous mm -hmm. african to thrive so you find that the missing middle is covered by you know uh, zambians of foreign origin who have a very unique sort of ethnocentric characters that uh, and legacies that don't enable private or don't at least allow for an opening for private equity investment to take place so those are the the main limiting factors in terms of why private equity is not growing yet um, and then also 
the fact that it's it's being done but outside of our jurisdiction but having a direct impact locally.